Commuting to work is a way of life shared by people all over the world. But experiences of subway warriors are not identical. The New York Times recently surveyed the work of Ted Green, who collects the various chimes, beeps, and sounds made by trains the world over. Sometimes the sounds are meant to be calming. Sometimes they're meant to keep riders alert, or even to resemble old-fashioned train sounds that don't occur anymore. It's another reminder that everywhere in our human environment, the world of art and design are always connected to us as we go through our daily lives. The impact of R. Murray Schaefer and the musical journey of Holly Matheson. All on this episode of Culture Monster. Hello everyone, I'm Jonathan Gressel. This is Culture Monster, the podcast that devours the arts. About those train sounds, you can hear some more for yourself. Link in the show notes for the Times piece. Conductor Holly Matheson is passionate about bringing the magic of an orchestra to everyone she can. Her Nevis ensemble has gone all around Scotland, including the summit of Ben Nevis. She spoke to me about growing up in New Zealand, the roundabout way her career took flight, and of course, her work with Symphony Nova Scotia. But first, the Culture Monster Bite of the Day. This is where I recommend something I have devoured recently. Culture Monster jumps on a bandwagon from a few years ago. Madeleine Tien's novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing. The book is not exactly obscure. Shortlisted for the Booker, winner of the Governor General's Award, winner of the Giller Prize, it already has quite a few fans. Even Catherine Leroux's French version won the GG for translation in 2019. Much of the action of the book takes place in China, at various times from the 1940s to the present, including depictions of the Cultural Revolution and the Tiananmen Square protests. In the middle of this is a story of a girl and her mother living in Vancouver, both in flashback in 1991 and in the present, where she wonders about her absent father and the mysterious young woman who stayed at their house in 1991, reflecting on her family's connection to larger historical events. This gives the impression the book is just an overly cute history lesson, but that really isn't the case. How does an individual take action and make choices in the face of terrible odds and historical crises? This is one of our themes. But really, much of the book is about the power of art, of storytelling, and about music and the love of music to make meaning in our lives. This is made clear in this passage where the young musician Zuli questions her father's insistence on keeping things the party leadership has banned. But why give the authorities an excuse? She asked. 
if the neighborhood can turn in one family of counter-revolutionaries, an entire block can be saved. People are just trying to get by. A voice in her head scolded her. Why do you persist in playing music which is outrageously formalist? Why did you react disdainfully when Kai brought you the correct music? Are you too idiotic to realize the very existence of a violin soloist is counter to the times? Because, Julie, the old cat said, these books were bequeathed to me by my beloved father. And at some point, a person must decide whether they belong to the people who loved them or whether they belong to the emperors. Our country is old. How can the party convince me otherwise? I know who I am, and I know what old means. If the party knows it too, good for them. I must meet the destiny that was written out in my lineage. If they want to hurry me into the next life, okay. I am old. I will go. I would only miss my little Ling. Throughout the novel, people draw power and solace from some stories and create menace and terror from others. A violin or musical composition may not change history, but they have a fundamental power nevertheless. Madeleine Tien's prose is crisp, but evocative. And while the immigrant experience is a noticeable feature of much literature, there is something distinctly Canadian about the final result here. We continue to be shaped by the past, even as we give ourselves more space to make choices that will direct our future. Do Not Say We Have Nothing is published in Canada by Knopf. Links in the show notes. Musical creators across Canada are reflecting on the life of R. Murray Schaefer as news broke of the death of the 88-year-old composer, researcher, and author. Even thinking strictly of the realm of composing written musical works, Schaefer must be considered a giant, with a body of chamber music, symphonic works, opera, choral pieces, and a variety of theatrical works. His creative mind made an impact well beyond that, however. While teaching at Simon Fraser University in the late 1960s, he became increasingly concerned with the noise and hum of urban life and founded the World Soundscape Project, an organization that researches the role of sound in our lives but also spurs the creation of artistic works, soundscapes, which take for their source recordings of the world, both natural and artificial. Many of these ideas were presented in his book, The Tuning of the World, which popularized the term soundscape and jump-started a new discipline dubbed acoustic ecology. He continued to explore these ideas throughout his life and career. 
Fairly early on, he wrote a piece entitled Music for Wilderness Lake for 12 trombonists spaced around a body of water. This interest culminated in his massive musico-operatic series of works called Patria, Homeland. These 12 pieces were created over the course of 40 years. Some of them are not really musical works in the sense of having performers and audience. Patria 6, Ra. This piece, inspired by ancient Egyptian myth, involves an audience of 75 who are dressed and participate in the action as initiates who are led into the underworld by Anubis to be guided through an 11-hour ritual that encompasses the death and rebirth of the sun god Ra. A performance of Ra involves more than two dozen separate locations and has only been performed twice. Another grandiose work is Apocalypsis, commissioned by the CBC in 1976, which involves hundreds of performers. A second production of Apocalypsis for the Luminato Festival in 2015 involved more than a thousand performers, including the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir, Tafel Music Baroque Orchestra, Brent Carver, and Tanya Tagak. Schaefer was the recipient of the first Glenn Gould Prize, as well as Canada Council's Leger Prize for Chamber Music, and was a companion of the Order of Canada. After his 80th birthday, he stopped giving interviews after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, but still wrote a memoir, My Life on Earth and Elsewhere, in addition to a piece for the opening of Toronto's Kerner Concert Hall. His last completed work seems to be a 13th piece for string quartet entitled Alzheimer's Masterpiece. Schaefer started his career as a student of John Weinsweig, the dean of the first generation of Canadian composers, and Schaefer's influence on younger generations is deep and wide. From those who expanded the world of acoustic ecology, like Hildegard Westerkamp, to those composers who take the natural world as their subject and inspiration, like Carmen Braden and Alan Gordon Bell. R. Murray Schaefer remains a giant and particularly Canadian artistic figure. He will be missed. Holly Matheson is a conductor poised to make an impact, both in her home base of Old Scotland and as music director of Symphony Nova Scotia. We spoke about the different ways different sorts of ensembles relate to the rehearsal process, how a conductor must be a clever psychologist, as well as her own career journey. Holly Matheson joins me now. Let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and what was the role of music in your life as a, as a child? Wow, that's a huge question. Um, I grew up in the other big Scottish diaspora, <laughs> other than Nova Scotia, Dunedin, at the bottom of New Zealand. And the, the name Dunedin literally means Little Edinburgh of the South, basically. And it's a, it's a map of Edinburgh slapped on a bit of Pacific Island, which is quite incongruous. But it's a very much a diaspora community obsessed with bagpipes and kilts and things like that but also it inherited a lot of the British choral tradition so 
choral singing is massive in New Zealand and any basically any professional New Zealand who musician who comes out of New Zealand has been through the choral training system and it's very well regarded it's it's world class so I sang in in school choirs and church choirs and things like that but actually the the biggest influence for me in music was my grandmother who was a pianist very very accomplished pianist but had pregnant and had a family and any chance of a career and traveling overseas came to an end but she still taught most of the grandchildren or any that lived within sort of just easy distance she taught the pianos and I was the last of that line of grandchildren who lived close enough to learn from her and just continued on throughout my childhood um so piano and choir were the the big things for me and so this was a very normal Thing in your family and was it a big thing with at school or did you seem were you marked out because you were uh, interested in music at school I was a total geek for being into music it, it's a rugby crazed country sport crazed country it's definitely not cool to be into classical music so uh, luckily for me I was also and in fact more so obsessed with ballet and since that was something physical and active, I think that was a little bit more socially acceptable. And actually, that was what I was obsessed with. Music was the slightly annoying thing that my grandma made me do. But as with many dancers, I, I took it very, very seriously, right up to the point of studying full time. But as with many young dancers, injuries and the, the wrong body type and all of these sorts of things get in the way. It's, it's incredibly difficult to continue. So music ended up being a far more pragmatic <laughs> career choice. But by the time I got to that point, actually, I'd shifted to composition. I had no, no intention of being a pianist at any point. Uh, but I loved composing and I, and I enjoyed conducting. Was there something in particular that drew, that drew you to composing at that time? I think it's, it was of interest to me because it, it deals with manipulating the fabric of music, which is similar to conducting, actually. I liked the privacy of it, <laughs> that you do it at home on your own, which it does not share with conducting, sadly. It's the hardest bit of conducting. But also I was just really lucky to cross paths with a brilliant teacher. So Grandma had always encouraged me to, to compose little songs and ditties and things right when I was really tiny. And I still have the, the books of little things that she had me writing. And she passed them on to one of the professors at the university, Jack Spears, and said to him, look, I've had this five-year-old granddaughter who's doing this and it's a bit weird. Is it just my familial bias or, or am I right in thinking this is kind of great what she's doing? So he said, no, you're right, that's a little bit strange. So when I turned 14, he actually got in touch and said, look, you're probably old enough now to come and have some lessons, so why don't you pop down to the university on Wednesday afternoons, um, see if school will let you out an hour early, and just come and have a, a lesson with me each week. That was like a light going on, really. It was um, wonderful, just have an hour, hour or two, and often it would extend much longer. We just had such a nice time studying together, and he was a great teacher, a very loving teacher quite tough he didn't really give much praise um but he just so attentive being a 14 15 year old I was a sponge 
So I think he enjoyed it as well. And then it just so happened that he was also the conducting teacher. So the two sort of went hand in hand. One thing they do have in common is that both the conductor and composer have to look deeply into the score and and, and find out what makes it tick. I mean, does that mean that you were already conducting as a teenager then? Yeah, so since I was a pianist and there weren't many of them in, in our school, I, I was sort of like the school pianist and it was, a, it was a Catholic school, so we had mass every week and things like that. So often I would play for mass, even though I actually wasn't a Catholic. I, I quite liked improvising on the hymns and things like that. It was really fun. So I got known for that sort of thing. And then when our choir conductor at school uh, went into hospital for some surgery, he said, well, you're the obvious person to take over while I'm in hospital. So I did that. And actually he and I've remained friends ever since. And I've assisted him a few times um, when I was younger as well, you know, once I was studying properly. New Zealand's an interesting place. that There's not much music going on, but it does mean that if there is someone interested, there will be something for them to do because there's no one else there to do it, if you know what I mean. And, and people will give, throw things at you, especially in the city I lived in, Dunedin. It's a very inward-looking, sort of uh, quite close city, only about 140,000 people or something like that, and all based around a university. So it sort of it has a spirit of nurturing young people already. So it was a great place to grow up from that point of view. So yeah, I got quite a bit of conducting experience there. And since I had the ballet background as well, I think Jack, my teacher, was like, well, "You're a pianist, you're a composer, and you're a dancer. If you put those things in a blender and and pour it out, it's you're kind of born to be a conductor." What did you think conducting was at that time before getting advanced training? I mean, did you have a a false idea of what conductors actually did? I suppose I, I must have. I mean, I, I loved the physical aspect of it. I loved the, the dancer in me enjoyed the process of trying to perfect something physical and knowing that that was going to be an, a, a lifelong battle, but feeling those little bits of progress about just the pure physical manipulation of your body to make things happen. But since I'd been studying composition with him, I think actually... Um, if I think about those composition lessons and our early conducting lessons, it was all just analysis, it was score analysis. Um, so actually I think Jack equipped all of his students really well in that way, that it always came from the perspective of problem solving. It was never about what is your interpretation of the score. It was what are the problems the score presents, how are you going to make it work, how are you going to fix them, or how are you going to address them which I think is a really good foundation. I think what I didn't realise at the time was, although he did try to tell us this, but I didn't understand it until I was much older, was how much of it was about psychology, group psychology, how you motivate and get on board and uh, try and get a, a productive working relationship with a room of up to 120, very opinionated, very brilliant, but often quite um, blinkered human beings. And that that's the biggest challenge, I think, for, for most of us. I mean, I do want to get back to that point. I just want to go a little bit further with your personal journey that by the time you went to university, music was 100% what you were, you were going to do. Yes, but not really by choice. It was more that ballet had had to stop. So it was kind of like it was my plan B and I, I was having to fall back on it, I suppose was how it was. 
I never considered, I think I, I did like two philosophy papers and two management and marketing papers or something like that. And I remember philosophy, really, I, I just wasn't intelligent enough for that. <laughs> I didn't have the brain for it. And with the management and marketing, I, I just remember thinking, I'm sorry, but this is just common sense. I don't understand why you, this is being studied at university, which they were very basic 101 kind of papers, and that's no disrespect to those people who go on and study it at a high level. But at the time, you know, I was, as a musician, you're dealing with philosophy and the history of art and the history of thought and the history of ideas and cultural intersection. And so it, it was just such a different world. It, it didn't stick for me. So I think I, I did the right course. But funnily enough, the building right next to the music school was a computer science building. I always had in the back of my mind, because I was obsessed with computers and computer games, oh, the other thing I could be doing is computer science, <laughs> which I never did. And I wish I had. I wish I'd done that as a, a sort of a, a code share paper. But I'm, I'm coming to that as an adult now. But other than that, at university, it was always going to be music. So did you feel that you would have to leave New Zealand to continue a career in classical music? Absolutely. It was just a given, and it still is for people who study there. And in fact, it's only down to the pandemic that I've had work with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra because they can't get foreign conductors in. You know, it's um, like many smaller countries on the periphery. The, the draw card is bringing people from the centre, so bringing Europeans, and um, European culture is what has status. It's very colonial mindset, post-colonial mindset. So if you were a local and you'd never left, it was because you weren't good enough. And if you did leave to do your training elsewhere and have other countries invest in you in that way, you had to go away for long enough that you seemed like a foreigner <laughs> before coming back. It's, it's a very extreme case of um, tall poppy syndrome. Was Scotland just the obvious place to go? Or how, I mean, what, how did you think about that? Oh, that sort of happened later, actually. Okay. I did my master's in Australia first in Melbourne with an Englishman called John Hopkins. And then I went back to New Zealand and did a PhD. And I thought, well, I, I, know I need a, a backup of some description because conducting is a hell of a gamble and I, I'm not entirely sure I want to do it because orchestras are mean. So <laughs> I did a PhD as my backup. And, and during the course of that, ended up doing operas and things like that and quite enjoying it. So once that had finished, I moved to London with my partner at the time, ostensibly for his career development because he was interested in doing baroque trumpet and he owned one and he played it beautifully but there was no one else in New Zealand to play one with <laughs> he just did it as a hobby and his teacher said look this is ridiculous go to London you'll have gigs every week I convinced him that he should do that and go to London and I kind of went as well and I realized in, in retrospect actually I was more interested in moving than he was and I ended up as the librarian at the Philharmonia Orchestra juggling the scores and parts for Esa Salonen and his extraordinary band of players, traveling the world with them every week. And it was absolutely amazing, terrifying and growth spurt inducing and frustrating and exhausting. And it was so fun. It was such an amazing job to end up with. It was still sort of being run in a very 
pre-modern world way. (laughs) The previous librarian had a fax machine and no internet down in the library, which is down in a crypt of an old church. He had a photocopier, but it was only a single-sided photocopier that he had to move, you know, the paper by hand to do the second side. I mean, it's just amazing for one of the busiest orchestras in the world. No assistant, nothing. It was just unbelievable. And they, I think at that time they still even, their, their, their schedule was a, a book, handwritten book of what was happening that week and, you know, what time the rehearsals were. It was amazing. It, was, it had basically not changed since 1930. So he was retiring and I took over and and had two very intense but really inspiring years working for them. At that point, I I didn't have a type of visa that that I could stay on in London without sponsorship. So I moved to Berlin, actually, for a year and a half, where a lot of down-and-out artistic people end up because you can get a creative visa, basically an arts visa, which says... I'm a creative freelancer. I can afford to pay my rent on my own. I promise I will pay tax on whatever I earn and they give you a visa. While I was there, I started doing, conducting workshops and things just to get some more skills going because I was starting to get little requests from friends to conduct for things. And I thought, well, you know, I had assumed once I went to the UK, no one would ever be interested in me conducting because I would be a tiny fish in a big pond. But actually... You know, you just sort of the energy goes out and people respond and, and you realise there are lots of, even just some of the amateur musicians around the UK, for instance, who are always looking for conductors. They're phenomenal. I mean, there's professional level playing um, and they meet once a week, you know, in the evenings to work. So there was work to be that was available and, and chorus director work and things like that. But I, um, I was determined to to get some more training. So, yeah, I did these workshops and things, masterclasses. Eventually was getting enough work and had met an Englishman and fallen in love. <laughs> and so at that point I moved back to London and was able to get a visa that covered that work. So Scotland didn't come for another three years after that. What do you think makes Esabega Salonen such a compelling figure on the podium? I think like all conductors, there's a certain body of repertoire that he is particularly compelling in. And when you, I mean, when you see him doing Bartok, for instance, or Stravinsky, it is just kind of second to none. It's incredible. Part of it is he has this amazing mix of a very modernist kind of brain of clean lines, straight edges, no over-romanticization. But there is another part of him that can conjure up the most lush, flexible, chewing gummy kind of textures for, for instance, Debussy. One of the one of the earlier gigs I did as his librarian actually was when they did the Tristan, um, you know, with that incredible video. I sort of I didn't associate Esapeka with Wagner at all. <laughs> Certainly not Tristan, but it was the most tender kind of emotionally compelling reading of it. It was great. It was so cool. So to be doing that one year and then doing an entire kind of Bartok um, retrospective the year after where he sort of did every orchestral piece ever written by Bartok was amazing. I think also that it just 
as a human being, he's very interesting, very compelling because he's he's got that cool, private, sort of hidden aspect to him that a lot of Finns have, but the most incredible sense of humour. So he'll be sitting there quietly in the corner, just sort of ignoring everyone and, and keeping to himself, and then he'll just say something completely filthy, out of the blue, completely dry, without, a, without cracking a smile until the last possible minute. And so... You do actually, you feel like you you have a connection with him somewhere. There's something personal to him. And for instance, the orchestra never called him maestro. He was always EP or Esapeka, and that went for the staff as well. And it would be, it would feel disrespectful to call him anything else because you, you did feel like you were working with someone who could be your mate and who, who you could. And in fact, on tour many times we did go out and have you know a great night partying with but he was incredibly serious about his work incredibly rigorous in rehearsal no second of rehearsal was wasted it was never boring it was never mindless it was never pointless and he and he trusts musicians he doesn't over control but then there are you know personally i i i don't like his beethoven symphony so much sorry ep if you're listening but for me his brain and his technique is not the greatest for the, for the Beethoven symphonies. But, he, uh, you know, he doesn't perform them that often, so maybe he agrees. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you mentioned before conducting is a very public profession, but there is a side of it which is solitary. How much of conducting is is the bit that's solitary? Well, obviously the study aspect of it is and how much time you spend doing that depends on what your schedule's like and often it's far less time than we would like or we should have or we tell people we have just because the number of gigs that, especially as an early career conductor, the number of gigs you get with, say, pops or education concerts where you turn up and one of the scores is on the stand at the beginning of rehearsal. That's the first time you've seen it because it only got written the night before, you know. So you do far more very quick panic studying than, than we like to admit. But then I think actually the um, even in the, the rehearsal phase when you are working with people, a lot of that is you feel very isolated. And part of that is the dynamic between the orchestra and the conductor, but also because you're almost always away from home, staying in a hotel. The orchestra always has their own routines and things and they have their social circles. They go off for lunch together. You've these days I tend not to use the conductor's dressing room. I'll just have my bag in the rehearsal room with me and I'll just go out to a cafe for lunch or something like that. It actually wasn't helpful to just scarper out the door and the, and the tea breaks and disappear into my own little room and hide by myself. It was doing more harm than good psychologically for me. But, yeah, you do spend a lot of time alone and in hotels, although these days I actually refuse to stay in hotels if I'm going somewhere for more than three days. I'll say, look, tell me what you would have spent on it. I'll, I'll book an Airbnb <laughs> and I'll find a place in the suburbs somewhere next to a cool little community cafe or something like that. From the audience point of view, a lot of attention is focused on the conductor. Audience is also very fascinated by the conductor. What do audiences not quite understand about what a conductor actually does as a job? That is such a leading question. Uh- <laughs> I think probably the main thing is is that they think the conductor is far cleverer than the conductor is and, and far more 
in control of what's happening. And really, we're a lot of the time, we're just a, a kind of a, an additional member of the percussion section, really. And in, especially with a healthy orchestra that, that really has a healthy working culture and a healthy musical culture, there are at least three conductors in the room. There's the person on the podium, there's the timpanist, it's principal double bass, and, the, and of course, it's the, the leader. And that's kind of your little prism of conducting, as, as I see it. In a lot of orchestras, that's not the case because actually they don't respect each other, they don't work well together, they can't hear each other in the space because the acoustic's rubbish, whatever. And at those points, the conductor does need to do a lot more work. But more often than not, the, a good orchestra is, is flying the plane itself and we, we sort of guide the takeoff and the landing. And if you hit a bird when you're at altitude, then we deal with the little fire and put it out, you know. So I think that's probably one of the things. But also I, I think about, um, especially in the kind of YouTube age of conducting tuition where everything's so visual and focused on how things look, a lot of the, the, the sort of... Um, the conducting gesture and the, the image of the conductor that the audience gets most excited by is often what's least helpful for the orchestra. Often the, the conductors that the audience would say are very lazy or boring to watch or not doing much, they're the ones that are being the most helpful actually in creating the most beautiful sound often. I suppose the, the question here is, is it a an auditory job or a visual job? I would... Well, I suppose it's a bit of both. I think we do have a role to play in helping an audience listen by what our body does and where we focus their attention visually. But sometimes I think an, an audience places more importance on that than they realise. The one thing that you can, you, that you should be able to say about a conductor, all things being equal, is that the conductor has a greater sense of the frame around the piece if they've done their homework and if they've had time to study and if they have, a good brain so we we understand the context of the individual parts whereas the players themselves are usually more concerned with the individual parts themselves apart from very experienced orchestras playing symphonies they've played a million times they, they know it just as well as you do and if actually usually far better and there's very there's nothing to teach there you just there are, there are certain crossroads where you have to decide which version you're doing this week it's either going to be a or b so this week let's do b and actually, you, there are, in those kind of really like repertoire with a capital R kind of pieces, there will be those corners that an experienced orchestra will just raise an eyebrow to look at you at that moment to see how does, how does she deal with that juncture. Oh, yeah, she's one of those ones. Great. Okay, then we know we can predict what she's going to do at the next juncture as well. But actually, I, I remember talking to one of the violinists at the Philharmonia, a really wonderful guy called Adrian Varela. And he, he wrote a really interesting blog about don't watch the conductor. And it's interesting because he's a, a conductor as well. But his point was actually watching the conductor's movements are not so helpful. What's useful is to look up and see a very clear and succinctly expressed frame and then let the orchestra breathe and listen to each other and make the music inside the frame themselves. Now, obviously, that requires something a level of musicianship and technique and um, all of that from the orchestra. But that's the ideal. Which, If you're working with youth orchestras, you can't do that. I mean, you, you have to 
breathe every breath for every wind player if they're really young players. And, you know, you, you take responsibility for so much more because they can't do all of their tasks at once. As musicians get more experience, then, yeah, a lot of it actually is is for the orchestra to do. And actually a lot of it for me, it's, it's not even a case of walking into the room and having made a very firm and clear decision how I want the piece to be. I mean, there, there, there are so many pieces where you think, well, I'm going to wait and hear how the oboist plays the solo, how they want to do it, and then that I can shift what I'm going to do accordingly in these respects to accommodate them because they're incredibly experienced, they're a brilliant musician, there's no reason not to do their version. And Leonard Slotkin used to joke that you get in front of a, a major orchestra and there are 40 people who think they can do the piece better than you and there are probably a dozen who could. How do you approach the situation then of being the one who's actually in the front? It's terrifying. It really is. And any conductor who says they don't or have never gotten nervous is lying, I think, because it is hard. And there is something about the sort of industrial revolution era kind of foundation of the orchestra of boss and workers that just lends itself to to conflict in a way or resentment and let's not even talk about the horrendous pay scaling between conductors and players I mean it's so offensive and unethical in most orchestras so they have reason to be pissy I'm certainly really grateful that I didn't end up doing the conducting I was doing any earlier in my life if it had been in my mid-20s I would not have had the apparatus to deal with those feelings of being a fraudster, (laughs) being an imposter, and the challenges that are put to you in the rehearsal room. And sometimes, most of the time, they're totally justified. That's the hardest bit. Every now and then it's just someone being annoying, but often at the heart of it is a really justified complaint or comment or request that you have to respond to. I, st- I still get nervous before first rehearsal. Concerts don't make me nervous at all. But first rehearsal, first time you're going to meet the orchestra is, is the hard point for most conductors. Because that's the moment you, you're going to judge how this relationship is going to unfold over the next three days. And you know pretty early on what it's going to be. And it's pretty much immovable after that, no matter how great the second day of rehearsal is, they sort of will have made up their mind. So that's quite tough. I was involved in a a Zoom discussion over the lockdown with Bernard Heitink and he said the most amazing thing because one of the other conductors said to him, Maestro, how do you deal, or when you were younger, how did you deal with the nerves and the anxiety of this, that you're walking into that room with such enormous and totally unrealistic expectations on your shoulders as a conductor? You're kind of doomed to fail. And the orchestra knows it and they play up. How do you deal with that? And he said, you have to get to the point that you are comfortable with the fact, I'm paraphrasing him here, you get comfortable with the fact that this is the version of the piece that you do in this point in your development. And the version you do when you're 30 will be completely different to the version you do when you're 60, but it is still the right version 
because it because it's authentic to who you are, where you are, what your learning has been, how nervous you are, how young you are. So he sort of immediately dispelled this notion that there is a perfect version of a piece that we're all trying to do, and if we fall short of it, we've failed or we're incapable or we're a lesser conductor or a lesser musician. And his point was, until the day you die, you're on a journey with every piece you do. And wherever you are on that journey, step one, step 10 or step 50, you do the version that, that, that you're at and that is right because it's, it's authentic to who you are, where you are, which was sort of mind-blowing. Perhaps it's easy to say that when you're the Yoda of conducting as high tinkers. He sort of can't put a foot wrong, but it was still really refreshing to hear him say that. But also I think one other, I remember I had a very difficult time with an orchestra here in Scotland and really awful bullying. And there was this wonderful moment I realised, oh, my goodness, actually this has nothing to do with me. This is about internal problems in the orchestra that they're projecting onto the podium. And once I knew that, I actually just kind of felt compassion in a way. thought, well, then what can I do to help them take the ball back and and fix the problems in the orchestra. And in the end, I didn't achieve that at all. <laughs> They're still bullies. But uh, luckily, I'm not the victim anymore. I, I, I'm not in there. But it, it was a really good realisation. Yeah, well, I guess sometimes it's just the combination does not work out between them. Absolutely. And, and I remember that the Philharmonia, actually, when I was the librarian, there'd be mm-hmm. someone would come in and they would hate them. They'd have an awful week with them and the players would be rude to them. And then I would have friends in other cities who had them the week after and just thought they were a genius and loved working with them. And often some of those players would be the same players because they were depths jumping between the orchestras. But in a different group it worked, you know, at a different hall and a different with different repertoire it, it worked with a different leader. I think that makes a big difference often. You have had the experience of conducting in a number of different places in Europe, across the UK, in North America, in Oceania. How different is it when you are in front of an orchestra in Canada versus being in Germany or New Zealand? I'm very comfortable in the UK, partly because I've lived here for so long and I kind of have the same sense of humour as as Brits. But in Britain with the orchestras, they want to finish early. They do not want to be kept a minute longer than is needed. And to be perfectly frank, they could sight read the whole thing and do a really good job of it. In Germany, they can't sight read in the same way. They they really want you to use every minute of those five days of rehearsal or whatever. And in that time, they will go from, to be honest, a bit mediocre to really some great playing. So it's a huge journey from the beginning of the week to the end. With the British orchestras, you have a three-hour rehearsal to prove that you're not going to get in the way, basically. And that's that's how it works. The job in Canada is sort of um, my first real foray into North American conducting, but I have a lot of friends who, who work there as well. And I think there's a very different relationship with the conductor in North American orchestras. You're very much more sort of figurehead of the orchestra and a lot more involved in the community and fundraising efforts, which you wouldn't be really here in the UK. I think there's something in the tr- different in the training that, for instance, 
with the lockdown, this has been a really interesting time to see what happens to musicians when they can't get a conductor in, for instance. And the UK orchestras are like, yes, we get to do Beethoven 5 without a conductor. We're so happy. We're going to play it so much better without you. And they did. They loved it. They would much prefer to be self-directing and they just did chamber music and, you know, there were some things they needed conductors for, but they were perfectly happy. A lot of the North American orchestras I know of and have friends who work with, it made them very anxious. So even for quartets and quintets, they wanted conductor present, even over the airwaves, even online, just to provide direction and take responsibility, take artistic responsibility. So I think there's a difference in mindset in North America, maybe that the conductor has far more, it's a far more hierarchical post, whereas here, here being the UK, you're a slightly weird loner who turns up and uh, contributes to a concert, but actually the orchestra fully acknowledge they are better than you and could play it just as well without you usually. It, it's a very different relationship in that way. New Zealand's interesting. I mean, I've not done a huge amount of work there, but um, certainly I, I think it's more like the British system, which is not surprising because it is basically 1940s Britain in many ways culturally. Australia, where I studied, was a little bit different. Was, players were a lot more confident and cocky and took it all quite seriously. So I think in New Zealand, there's, there's quite a relaxed vibe to it. So yeah, they're very different. Very, very different. You are the music director of Symphony Nova Scotia. You talked about psychology earlier. When you went there for the first one or two times, how did you know that this was a relationship that was actually working out, that you appreciated being there and that they appreciated working with you? It, it's hard to say. I think I just, it felt like I'd been working with them for 10 years. It just immediately fell into this very easy banter. We had a similar sense of humour. There were no airs and graces. There was no maestro rubbish. You know, it was just, hey, Holly, would you mind if we do it this way? Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's try it. We were just, there was this wonderful kind of just room of adults getting on and doing their work together. And that it was just tremendous. I also really, you know, when you're going in for trial weeks as a conductor, you, you interface a lot with board members and major donors and things like that. And all of them were just incredibly intelligent, funny, thoughtful, cultured people. And again, there was no maestro rubbish. It was just there's a wicked restaurant. I think you're going to love it. Let's go and have some gin first. And then I'm going to take you to my favorite restaurant and, and we can talk about the music education problems in our province and, and what you're going to do about it. <laughs> you know, it was great. Really. Um, obviously it's still a, quite a classical music is nearly always quite a status, a high status sort of activity to participate in and to, to observe, but uh, there was no, the snobbishness around it. There was no kind of pretentiousness, which I absolutely loved. And, you know, the players know audience members. It is genuinely a community of people who know each other, which I thought was pretty special. Uh, audiences see the performances, but uh, rehearsals are actually a lot more of the time spent 
take me into the rehearsal room. What is going on there? I agree. And I actually think the, the rehearsal is far more interesting than the concert. And if whenever orchestras are in town that I'm interested in, I'd, I'd much rather go to the rehearsal and skip the concert. I suppose I, in the back of my head, I, I don't know whether this is correct or not. Many people, I think, would disagree with me. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, let's rehearse it in such a way that by the end of the week, I've kind of rehearsed myself out of a job. So that by the time we get to the concert, you can kind of steer the ship yourselves and I'm just there to put the fires out if needed. So it's about learning the piece together and learning how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together as much as it is, let's see if you specifically are playing your part perfectly. And I, I always start with a full run-through of a movement or an overture so that we kind of know the architecture and the, the lay of the land, especially if it's a lesser known piece. I think that's really important, again, so that people have a big frame to then dig deep and look at the detail in. For me, I keep rehearsals jovial and lighthearted. I have to be careful not to say too many rude jokes. <laughs> you have to make do your bit to make sure that people are enjoying their work as players as well as working hard and uh, are happy in their work. I just work through it and there'll be some things that you think well we're not going to fix that problem this week it's almost certainly going to be an annoying bit of the concert but there are bigger issues and perfection is not a goal for me necessarily I think it's really easy in rehearsal to get bogged down with is the second bassoon perfectly in time with the first bassoon and is that lining up perfectly and are all the triplets exactly in time and yes all of that's really important and we do devote time to it but it's a real shame if that's at the expense of character and phrasing and timbre and you know far more interesting things to be talking about and actually things that are going to make a far bigger difference to the audience's enjoyment of the concert and at the end of the day it's all about the audience really do you have some specific goals for your time with the symphony of scotia well, I'd love to get there. That's my primary goal at the moment is actually get into the country. <laughs> We're sort of anxiously watching all of the, the travel updates from, from the province at the moment to see if that's going to happen. Going back to the question you asked earlier about why it felt good and uh, in those first two visits, and one of the other reasons was because our values aligned on a whole lot of things. So, I mean, this is an orchestra. They can play nice concerts. They can play repertoire with a capital R very, very well and their audience will love it and they'll buy tickets for it and that's easy. That's not difficult to do. But actually we have all these other goals and sort of pots on the fire around supplementing the education in the province and making really genuine and enduring friendships and collaborations with the Migmore community and what they need from us and what we can provide for them, even if it doesn't end up something in front of an audience. We can't sell tickets to it. Just actually making meaningful connections with them, which we're doing, and and just thinking thoughtfully about why this music at this time for these people about everything we do. So there's never just a, a blanket, oh, well, let's do better than five because we know it will sell. 
And of course, our marketing team will say, but yeah, it will sell. And that's fine. But then we, we make sure that the rest of the program is thoughtfully arranged to go with it to make sure that there's proper nourishment in there that's appropriate for the time we live in and the, the events we've gone through in the last few years and that it's a kind of building a culture that will will endure that it won't just be a, a sort of a zeitgeist of pandemic and black lives matter time and then go back to easy conservative programming but that it's actually something that shifts the listening culture and the funding culture in the province symphony orchestra as a civic community institution yeah, definitely. I wonder if there are a couple of pieces of music that are perhaps a, a bit off the beaten path that you would recommend for listeners if they would they, they would like it if they only knew what it was. Oh, yeah, definitely. Good question. So number one thing that comes to mind is William Grant Still's Fifth Symphony, Western Hemisphere. It's an absolute banger. It's so cool. It's quite short. I think it's only about half an hour long. It may be even less, 25 minutes. It's just, it's pure goodness. The other composer I would strongly recommend is Franz Schrecken, who is Austrian. And he, he wrote some really wonderful, lurid, kind of post-Marlerian stuff. Completely wacky operas with sort of five harps, 500 horns, you know, enormous things that no one can actually put on on a, an ordinary budget, but great music. And one of my favourite pieces of his is The Birthday of the Infanta, after the Oscar Wilde story. It's so fanciful and characterful and slightly wonky and unwieldy and strange proportions, but it's absolutely magic music. A little bit like Zemlinsky, similar sort of, or later Corn Gold, similar kind of language to that. So the third one I would draw people to is a woman called Thea Musgrave, who's a Scotswoman. She's written some incredible music. Dip into any of the orchestral stuff, um, some amazing um, chamber music as well. Brilliant, brilliant composer. Uh, well, the, the funny thing was I was about to goad you on in the sense that since you've been in Halifax, were there any uh, Canadian composers of works that particularly uh, intrigued you so far? Well, we've not really had a chance to do much, although it did a, a really fantastic commission with Rebecca Thomas, the Poet Laureate from a few years ago in Nova Scotia, which was tremendously successful. I think a lot of the sort of, she's she's uh, part Indigenous, or she is Indigenous. A lot of her poetry deals with issues of settler issues and indigeneity and identity and this sort of thing. So a lot of the kind of dyed-in-the-wool audience members, I think, were frightened to come because they thought they were going to have a woman yelling at them on stage for being the descendants of settlers. And actually, the last note sounded and the entire audience just was on their feet, screaming with excitement. It was such a cool piece. So that's probably the most exciting commission we've had. But we've got some interesting stuff coming up, actually. Holly Matheson, conductor, thank you so much for joining me. Total pleasure. Thank you for having me. Symphony Nova Scotia promises a flexible season starting this fall, with each program featuring works by women and people of colour. Whether it turns out to be chamber orchestra-sized or with small ensembles, there will be music available digitally. Their website right now still features quite a bit of music, discussion, and educational content. Link 
in the show notes. That's all for now. Next week, the Culture Monster Conductor Collection culminates in our season finale with a six-time Grammy winner and author of the new book, Classical Crossroads. Maestro Leonard Slatkin is my guest. Amongst other topics, he solves for me the problem of how to conduct the first five bars of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. I'm Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for listening. Kérem vigyázzanak, az ajtók záródnak. Please stand clear of the closing doors.